Okay, we are live. <clears throat> so this is where we got up to last class. We were talking about different types of messenger RNA processing. I alluded to the fact that there is processing for other transcripts, Paul 1 and Paul 3 transcripts. So we're not really going to talk about those so much. Um, we already covered capping. And there's three major forms of RNA processing for a Paul 2 transcript. Uh, capping having been done, we've been talking a little bit about splicing. Again, the idea of splicing is this idea that the primary transcript, that which is transcribed by RNA polymerase 2, is different in sequence from the sequence that is going to be found on the mature messenger RNA. The messenger RNA that's actually going to get out to the cytoplasm is going to be translated by the ribosome. What happens is that there are sequences on the primary transcript, bless you, that um, recruit, in the case of the spliceosome, recruit this big macromolecular complex called the spliceosome. It's very large. It's on the order of the same size as a ribosome. There are sequences on the message that recruit the spliceosome to certain sites, and the spliceosome catalyzes the removal of this, in this case, this yellow sequence, such that you generate uh, a spliced message. And we'll go into a little bit more to the mechanism on the, le on, the next on the next slide for how the spliceosome does it. So you get this spliced messenger RNA, and this intervening sequence, or intron, is removed. And so that's not found on the messenger RNA when it gets out to the cytoplasm and finds the ribosome. Now there are some, as I alluded to last class, some messenger RNAs have introns that splice themselves. This was a big discovery. People didn't believe that, you know, people always thought enzymes were proteins. Things that catalyze things must be a protein in a cell. Well, the discovery that the intron would fold into a shape, it would have a secondary structure and a tertiary structure. The actual intron, the RNA itself, would fold into a shape that would catalyze its own splicing. It cuts itself out of the message, and it ligates the two exons back together. That was a big deal. People actually didn't believe it for a long time. Um, and, and no less the person who discovered it and his group. They thought this was a weird thing that was happening in their experiment that they didn't understand, and they chased it for some time before they convinced themselves that it was the RNA doing it. And that was good enough to win Tom Cech a Nobel Prize. A Canadian, actually, Sid Ullman, uh, concurrently working on a different uh, RNA that did catalysis called RNAs-P, he shared that Nobel Prize for this idea of catalytic RNA. So we now call catalytic RNA these ribozymes. Basically, they're enzymes that are made of RNA. So that's how a self-splicing intron does it. But in this cell, this is done, as I alluded to, this idea of, a, of an RNA, uh, of this, sorry, this macromolecular complex called a spliceosome. So this is what does it in the nucleus of, of your cells, generally, and in all eukaryotes. So basically, here's your messenger RNA again. It's got the five prime exon. This is the part that's going to be retained in the mature message. It's got the three prime exon. And the intervening sequence, the intron, is here in yellow. And the spliceosome is this complex, this big machine that will come along and remove this intron. The subunit, it's made up of several subunits, uh, six to be, on, to be precise. Uh, the subunits are called small nuclear ribonuclear protein particles, okay, or SNRNPs. Uh, we abbreviate, people just call them SNRPs, just to be, because uh, that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Right, so SNRP is small nuclear ribonuclear proteins. Okay. These subunits of the spliceosome are made up of both protein and RNA. So looking at the slide, you can 
probably make a guess as to why there's an RNA component to the SNRPs. So this is the SNRPs. Are, so here's your messenger RNA here. You've got the U1 SNRNP, the U2 SNRNP. The designation of U1 versus U2 versus U4, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the designation of those uh, relies primarily on the identity of the RNA that's in the SNRP. So the U1 SNRP has the U1 SN RNA in it, the U1 small nuclear RNA in it. The U2 SNRP has the U2 SN RNA in it. They may have other proteins as well that are unique to each SNRP, although some of the proteins are shared. We're not going to get into that so much, but you should understand that the RNA that's in the U1 SNRP is different from the RNA that's in the U2 SNRP. They all have RNA in them, but they all have different RNAs. The U1 SNRP has an RNA in it whose sequence, and this is why these SNRNPs have RNA in them, the sequence in the U1 SNRP is complementary to the sequence at the exon intron junction. So this is how the spliceosome finds introns. Basically, the sequence of the RNA in the U1 SNRP base pairs with the sequence that's to be spliced. Okay? So that's how this is found. On the other hand, the U2 SNRP, there's sequence homology between the U2 SNRNA and this sequence, this A that I'm going to talk about when I go over here. This is called the branch point. And then there are other sequences, other components that will recognize the sequence at the three prime exon, intron exon junction. Okay? So this is the general idea of kind of how this works. Here's your messenger RNA uh, with its, it's just been transcribed, so it still has its intron. The U1 and the U2 SNRP bind. The U1 SNRP recognizes this sequence here. This is the junction between the five prime exon and the beginning of the intron. The U2 SNRP binds to this A, which we're gonna call the branch point. And then these other SNRPs come in and form this big complex, and I'm not gonna necessarily get into the details of it, there are, but there are labs that have dedicated their entire careers to this, to figuring out the precise mechanisms of how this happens. And it's really kind of interesting and fascinating, and, and you can imagine that, and there's a, another whole different field that's dedicated to some introns are spliced better than others, sometimes one intron will be spliced instead of a different intron because there's changes in sequence that result in partial or uh, impartial recruitment of the spliceosome to certain splice junctions. That's a whole field called alternative splicing, where you can actually make more than one protein from the same message, depending on which exons you use. It's kind of like a pick and choose which sequences you want to form uh, the mature protein out of. But the idea is the way the splicing happens is all the same. I want to talk a little bit about, I talked a little bit about U1, I talked a little bit about U2. Beyond that, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but the, these other SNRPs come in, and basically there's a bunch of chemical rearrangements, and which results in, finally, the release of the intron. Um, and there's this interesting lariat structure that I'm going to talk about um, a little bit on the next slide as to how that, how that oh, no, on, only on this slide. So basically, uh, the reason this A is important and, and we'll cover splicing in other courses in a little bit more detail, but you should understand some of these basics that I'm covering uh, to this extent now. Um, basically, this uh, five prime end of the intron, this G, is gonna form, it's gonna fold back and form a new linkage to this A, 
Okay? And that's why when you see this, see this A becomes, it's brought into proximity to this GU pair. And the G actually makes a linkage of new phosphodiester bond to this A. Okay? It's a five prime to, I believe it's a five prime to two prime linkage, because remember it's got a two prime hydroxyl here. And so basically they call this new RNA form a lariat. A lariat is another word for basically a lasso, right? So you guys know what a lasso is? It's basically a rope with a loop on the end. So you've got this RNA here where the RNA bends around and comes back and makes a new linkage to that A. And so this is a feature of introns after they've been removed and subsequently this intron will be degraded. Okay. But that's the general idea of what splicing is and, and in terms of how much detail you need to know, what I've covered is I think sufficient. This idea that you have SNRPs, the SNRPs have RNA and protein in them, they make up the spliceosome, which catalyzes all of this. And we talked a little bit about U1 recognizing this sequence and U2 recognizing the branch point, this A, and the formation of this lariat. And beyond that, I'm not sure I want to get into too much detail. But are there questions on that up to where I've covered? Yeah. Yes, so that, that, RNA is, that RNA is transcribed. It's part of the message. Yes. It's just forming a bulge here. Do you see? Like, uh, so you've got these nice base pairs between the U2 SNRP and, and because there's no complementary base in the SNRP, they've drawn it as a bulge. And that's important for it to be accessible for the, for the reaction. Asking, the question is, why is this A sticking out? It's sticking out only because it's bulged with respect to complementarity with the U2 SNRP sequence. It is part of the intron sequence. The AG on the three prime end is removed by other forms of catalysis that have to do with other components that I haven't gotten into the detail of. Like I said, it, it's known, but we're just not covering it in that amount of detail. You're welcome to look it up, though, if you're super keen. Yeah. Right, so the question is, is the U1 and the U2, the only difference is, them, is the RNA or not. Certainly, they differ in the RNA. They also differ in some of the proteins, okay? However, there is a, and again, we're not getting into this degree of detail for the purpose of this course, there is a common set of proteins that all the SNRPs have. So they all have a common set of some proteins, they all have some unique proteins, and they all have a unique RNA. Okay. All right, the last form of uh, Pol2 transcript processing has to do with this, the poly-A tail, right? So we talked a little bit about how termination happens in prokaryotes, right? We talked about row-dependent termination and row-independent termination. Uh, transcription termination for poly-A, for Pol2 transcripts and eukaryotes, it has a little bit of conceptual similarity to uh, row-independent termination. Uh, no, sorry, row-dependent termination that I covered uh, last class. There are some differences. What's similar is that what's going to happen is uh, Paul 2 doesn't inherently terminate. It doesn't, uh, it only terminates when it's kind of made to terminate. Uh, what do I mean by that? So 
if you gave RNA polymerase 2 a sequence of RNA to transcribe that never had this sequence on the DNA, this TTA, TTT, it would just transcribe forever. It's made, it's built to be extremely robust and just never fall off the DNA and always make messenger RNAs. And that makes sense because there are some messenger RNAs, especially in humans, that are ridiculously large. Like some messages, like the record is this protein called Titan, which is uh, form, it basically forms part of the cytoskeleton. It's hundreds of thousands of base pairs long. So if RNA polymerase wasn't really good at staying on the DNA and transcribing until it's made to stop, then you would never be able to make a, a messenger RNA that big. What happens is RNA polymerase runs along the DNA. It runs over this sequence, TTA, TTT. And because it transcribes that sequence, it makes in the RNA this sequence, this AAUAAA. That's a signal for polyadenylation and cleavage factors that are found, they're attached to the RNA polymerase. And as that sequence comes out of the polymerase, an endonuclease associated with the polymerase cuts the RNA. Okay, so it actually cleaves the RNA here. The green sequence, this is the sequence that uh, is upstream of the cut. Okay, so this blue box here is the cap. Okay, it's also associated with the message. Then you've got the messenger RNA here. And this sequence that's upstream of the cut is then recognized by polyadenylation factors which add a poly A tail on the three prime end. Okay, so basically when you have this cut happening here, that's the signal to, after that sequence, uh, enzyme called polyadenylate polymerase or poly-A polymerase in a non-templated way. So there's no DNA sequence for these A's, all right? After that sequence is put on and cut in the transcript, this poly, by, it's cut by an endonuclease associated with Pol2. The sequence, you get a cut right after it. And then this poly-A polymerase, which is also associated with RNA Pol, jumps on the messenger RNA and adds the number of A's varies between species. If you're talking about yeast, you're, doc you're looking at maybe 30 A's. If you're talking about humans, you're talking on the order of 200 A's. Okay, so then basically this polypolymerase adds a bunch of A's on the end. Okay, and, and again, those A's are not templated. They're not on the, that, there's no corresponding A sequence on the DNA. All right, it just adds a certain number of A's and then falls off. And now your messenger RNA has this poly-A tail. The function of that poly-A tail, uh, well, what happens is you have a protein called poly-A binding protein, which basically coats that poly-A tail and protects the three prime end from exonucleases, kind of similar in concept to how the cap protects the five prime end from exonucleases. So you've got a cap on the five prime end and a poly-A binding protein bound poly-A tail on the three prime end, and as a result, the messenger RNA is pretty resistant to degradation. And we're going to get into details on polyabinding protein and that process um, more extensively in, in subsequent courses if you take them. But you should understand that this mature messenger RNA has this poly-A tail on it. Okay? Um, and that helps protect the, the RNA from degradation. It also helps the translation of the message. A messenger RNA that has a poly-A tail will be translated better by the ribosome than a messenger RNA that does not have a poly-A tail something I didn't really, I left you hanging on, is how does uh, Pol2 stop, right? So Pol2 transcribed this sequence. You got a cut 
in the messenger RNA here, and the 5 prime end, uh, that is the green part, and this sequence, that becomes polyadenylated and uh, becomes the mature messenger RNA. But what happens to polymerase? You know, when it transcribes this sequence, it keeps going. It's still going down the DNA, right? That this sequence is in the rear. View, this sequence is in the rearview mirror, right? It's it's already done that. It's behind it. Well, bear in mind that uh, when the cut happens, when the endonuclease cuts in and around here, what happens? Well, this region here that's still in the enzyme and all the stuff that's going to be transcribed after it, it's got a new five prime end. Right? Because of the cut. The cut happens here, and now this piece that's in the enzyme has a new 5' end that's not capped. Right? The cap is over here. Right? So this bit of the messenger RNA used to be protected from exonucleases, but this bit that just got cut is not. There's no cap there. And so exonucleases come in and start degrading. They start, so I'll draw it out. Here's your DNA. Here's RNA polymerase. Here's the messenger RNA that's come out, and there's that sequence, AAU, AAA. And here's the whole rest of the message, and there's a cap here. Well, the cleavage happens here, right? The cutting happens just after that sequence. And so you end up with this, cap, AAU, AAA, and then a little bit. And this is going to become the substrate for adding the poly A tail, right? There's lots of A's that are going to be put on here. But then you still have this piece, right? You've got the DNA and the polymerase. And the cut happened here. You still have this little bit, right? But there's no cap on this one, right? So the polymerase keeps going. It's going down the DNA because nothing stops it. But now, right? We talked about exonucleases, Pac-Mans that come in. It's going to start degrading this in a five prime to three prime direction, and it's gonna chase after the polymerase. It's basically using the RNA that's being made. I always think of, you guys are too young for this. Um, there's this like old Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny has this bag of gunpowder, and he gives it to Yosemite Sam, and Yosemite Sam runs away, but, but, but Bugs Bunny pokes a hole in it with a knife, and so as he's running away, it's making a trail. And then Bugs Bunny lights the trail. And he's trying to get away from it, right? Because he's going to get blown up. But he's, as he runs away, it's chasing after him, right? Because it's obviously he's just leaving a trail. And eventually it catches up to him and, and he blows up. Well, that's what's kind of happening here, right? The polymerase is running down the DNA. And as it makes more RNA, that just gives the trail for the exonuclease to chase after it. And finally, the polymerase terminates when the exonuclease physically catches up to it and knocks it off. Yeah. The endonuclease is here. And that endonuclease is actually like tethered to, to the actual RNA polymerase. So as the RNA polymerase is going down the DNA, the endonuclease is going along with it. And it's basically reading the sequences that's coming out. And then when the sequence comes out, it cuts it. Yeah. Right. No, it displaces nucleosomes. Oh, nucleosomes get blown off by RNA polymerase. 
but it will eventually, in theory, get to a telomere. It will eventually get to the end of the chromosome. So I guess in that sense, it would eventually stop. But you don't want it to go until then. That would be ridiculous. We good? Okay. So here's our overview of eukaryotic messenger RNA processing. Here's your DNA. It's transcribed. You've got a plus one and a terminator. Uh, you make a primary transcript that has that is capped. Uh, this extra RNA refers to this little bit that's going to be transcribed after, right? But there's going to be eventually a cut there, so that extra RNA is going to be trimmed, right here. You trim it back because of the endonuclease cut, and you add a poly A tail to that, and then all these intervening sequences, these introns, A through G, are removed, so your mature messenger RNA has a cap, a poly A tail, and no introns in it. And that's your mature message, and that's what's exported to the, to the cytoplasm for translation. Okay, so I've kind of alluded to this a little bit, and I think some of this is going to be familiar to you already, but um, today we're going to talk mainly about, about the process of translating genetic information into protein. So we talked about how we have our storage form, our hard drive of genetic information, the DNA. That which we want to express, that which we want to make proteins of, we transcribe that genetic information in RNA, and we need to convert that information, right? So we've got genetic information that's coded in nucleotides into a different language a sequence made up of amino acids. That's what we call this process translation. The machine that does that is called a ribosome. Okay? Uh, to be able to do that translation, it needs basically a nucleotide amino acid dictionary. It needs something that's both a nucleotide and an amino acid. That is a charged tRNA. Okay? So a charged tRNA is both a protein and a nucleic acid. This was originally brought up, this, this concept was brought up by Crick. Um, so Crick is the same fellow who, who figured out the structure of DNA with Watson. He proposed that there must be an adapter molecule to translate nucleic acids into proteins. He just presumed that this must exist before anyone had actually found it. And then some people actually found it, and they actually, some of them actually resented Crick a bit because they felt that he had basically taken away his discovery, right? their discovery, right? I mean, basically said, yeah, he was right, you know, even though he, all he did was hypothesize it. So he, this is the idea. You've got your messenger RNA, which has genetic information. You've got this adapter molecule that can both read the messenger RNA and bring an amino acid along that codes for that particular sequence, right? We know now, and we'll talk about this on the subsequent slides, uh, the number of nucleotides you need to specify a particular amino acid is three, okay? So it's not that and why is that? Well, you can do some basic math to come to that conclusion, right? Uh, if you had one nucleotide coding for one amino acid, well, then that's fine if you only have four amino acids. But we have 20 amino acids, right? Is two nucleotides enough? No. Uh, if you put together all the possible combinations of two nucleotides, and there are four nucleotides to choose from, that's 16. We still don't have enough. To be able to code for 20, uh, 20 amino acids, you need a minimum of three. Now, that gives you more codons than you need, right? That gives you 64. Four times four times four is 64. Well, it turns out that some amino acids have multiple codons that code for them. Some have very few. Um, 
we'll talk about that in a, in a few slides. So this is uh, something I already showed you, this idea, this idea of this adapter substrate, with this charged tRNA. So this is the secondary structure again of a tRNA, okay? Um, this is more the tertiary structure. This is the kind of way it folds in three dimensions. We call this secondary structure for the tRNA, classically we call it a clover leaf because it looks like a three leaf, four leaf clover, I guess. Three leaf clover, there's a stem. Um, but when you fold it up into a shape, it looks more like a elbow or a letter L. And that's because um, this arm here kind of folds on top of this one. So this basically becomes one long, see this here, this T psi C arm and the amino acid arm is like one long piece. And then this one folds on top of this one and they have an angle with respect to one another. We call this the kind of a hinge in here. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the ribosome before we get into that, back into that kind of codon hypothesis. So this is the structure that is actually doing the translation. Highly conserved between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. I mean, at least fundamentally. In both cases, uh, it's huge. It's made of protein and RNA. It's made up of two subunits. In prokaryotes, these, um, we call the subunits 30S and 50S because uh, when we put them into a centrifuge, so we talked about in the first part of the class how centrifugation is good for purifying and separating things that are very big. Well, ribosomes certainly qualify. Ribosomes are very, very large um, on the order of megadaltons, okay? And this term, this S, is basically a unit to describe how something sediments in a centrifugal field. Something that is 50S sediments further than something that is 30s. And so the question then becomes, well, is S proportional to size? Yes, in a way. It's also proportional to shape. It's a combination of size and shape. Something that is a sphere will sediment, sediment differently than something that is, say, a rod. Okay? So even though they may have the same size or mass, they would, they would move through a, a centrifugal field or a gradient differently. And so that's why when you um, take a 50S subunit and a 30S subunit and you put them together into an intact whole ribosome, it doesn't add up to 80S. It actually adds up to 70S because this whole thing, it's not just 50 become, plus 30 becomes 80. You know, it's not just the mass. It's also the shape okay, and the size. Um, in eukaryotes, the large subunit is the, the 60S subunit. It's bigger. The, 40S the small subunit is 40S, and they come together to make an 80S. Okay. In both cases, we refer to the, this one as the large subunit, and this one as the small subunit. And if you look at them from afar, they look very similar. Obviously, the eukaryotic one's a bit bigger. Uh, it's got a few more bells and whistles on it. They fundamentally do the same things, but as you might expect, the eukaryotic one with more bells and whistles on it is able to kind of uh, do things uh, it actually comes down to more uh, an element of regulation. So the, because the eukaryotic one is more complex, there are more ways to kind of turn it on or off, so to speak. Um, this is a table of basically the components. Uh, what I want you to focus on is the number and the types of the ribosomal RNAs. This is for the prokaryotic ribosome, the E. coli ribosome. There's one RNA in the 30S subunit. And that one, just that RNA sediments at 16S. So there's the 16S ribosomal RNA, 
in prokaryotes. There's actually two RNAs in the large subunit, the 23S ribosomal RNA and the 5S ribosomal RNA. And those numbers have some meaning, so I think it's good to know those. Focusing on the number of proteins in them is less important. But they're all designated. Um, S1 refers to small subunit protein 1, and 1 is the biggest one, and the smallest one is S21. But I don't know if you need to focus on that so much. Um, ribosomes are very big. Uh, we talked about S. We talked about how eukaryotic ribosomes are bigger and more complicated. And ribosomes are in the cytoplasm, right? In both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. In, pro in, eukaryotes, in prokaryotes, there's no nucleus, so everything's cytoplasm. In, in eukaryotes, you have a nucleus and a cytoplasm. And this, we talked about this coupling of transcription and translation because in eukaryotes, the ribosomes are in the cytoplasm and the RNA polymerase is in the nucleus. You've got to make your messenger RNA in a eukaryote, process it, export it to the cytoplasm, and only at that point is it translated into protein. Questions on that? Okay, I expect that might be a bit of review for you. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, tRNA charging. Okay. So you might have, you'd be forgiven if you looked at this and said, well, this is just an RNA. And it is mostly an RNA. I mean, by mass, it's mostly RNA. You're on the order of 73 nucleotides here, and there's nothing else, because this tRNA is not yet charged, right? But the whole point of this adapter hypothesis is this has to have an amino acid on it. So the act of, we call this the amino acid arm because it's this three prime end that the amino acid is going to be linked to, okay? Uh, so we're going to put an amino acid on here. It's just one amino acid for all this big tRNA, but that's fine. And, but the point is that now you've got this kind of tRNA amino acid hybrid. The act of putting the amino acid on the tRNA is called charging, okay? So this is a reaction called charging, and this is kind of what it looks like when you've got it linked on. Here's the whole rest of the tRNA, and they're just zooming in on the end, okay? All tRNAs end in CCA. So if you go back here, right, here it is, CCA. And that A, the last A, the one that's in red here, is what the amino acid is going to be linked to, okay? So here's the tRNA. Here's the phosphodiester bond to this penultimate C, right? So there'll be a C here, and then phosphodiester bond, and then here's the A on the end, so this base is an A, and the carboxylic acid group of the amino acid is linked in, an, in a condensation reaction to the three prime hydroxyl of that last A. So instead of, you know, if you were making more RNA, you would add another nucleotide on that three prime hydroxyl. But this is the last nucleotide, you're not putting another nucleotide on the end, instead, of your, instead you're putting on the amino acid, okay? And this is a pretty high energy bond. Uh, it, uh, it wants to hydrolyze. It, it doesn't, it's not super stable. Um, so to make that high energy ester bond, so this is an ester, right? To make that bond, we have to burn an ATP. So here's your amino acid. Uh, it gets put on, uh, it gets charged by linking it on the enzyme to uh, an ATP, all right? And then that amino acid is moved from the A of the ATP to the A of the tRNA, okay? So there's basically this adenosine-linked intermediate, right, of this ATP, right? Basically, you have this 
AMP enzyme intermediate with the, with the amino acid on it, and that amino acid gets moved from the AMP in this intermediate to the A on the tRNA. Okay? And then at that point, the AMP comes off. So to charge the tRNA, you've burned an ATP into AMP. And that's like burning two ATPs into an ADP, right? You basically, uh, you've, you've hydrolyzed two phosphate. When you change an ATP to AMP, it's like you've burned two phosphate ester bonds. It's, it's twice as energetic as uh, tRNA to ADP. Right? So it's a pretty expensive reaction to be able to do that. Uh, it says two, two prime or three prime here because when this is on, it can actually go between them. But we think of it as the three prime because when it participates in on the ribosome, it's got to be in the three prime. It can actually it can actually move between these in an equilibrium reaction. But the, we usually draw it on the three prime. Okay. I thought I was going to cover. Oh, it's coming up. Okay. So this is kind of the summary of how translation occurs. Okay. So we're going to talk in generalities, and we're going to get into some more details in a few slides of the process of of, of translation. Okay. So step one, we've got our amino acid that's been charged on our tRNA. Okay. And initiation starts on the small subunit of the ribosome. Okay. So the messenger RNA, the amino acylated tRNA, and the small ribosomal subunit come together. Okay? And that puts the amino acyl tRNA right in the spot, the first tRNA, right in the spot where translation is going to initiate for that first one. Okay? So this is kind of pre-set up before the ribosome has even fully formed. Okay? At that point, the large subunit comes along, and now you've got this ribosome that's on a messenger RNA with the first tRNA with its charged amino acid right, ready to go. Okay. You now have to make the first peptide bond. Okay. So to do that, you need to recruit in basically amino acid two. And there are slots on the tRNA for, to accommodate these things. There's a slot on the tRNA, on the ribosome where uh, the we call this the peptidyl tRNA because the growing peptide chain is going to be attached to this tRNA, as you're going to see. So the peptidyl tRNA, the first tRNA in the reaction, occupies on the ribosome what we call the P site. So this is the P site. The tRNA and the amino acid that are going to come in to make the first peptide bond, this is an amino acylated tRNA or a charged tRNA. We also call it charged tRNA an amino acylated tRNA. That's going to come in and that amino acylated tRNA is going to go on the ribosome in what we call the A site. And so what you're going to have when you're ready to make a peptide bond is a charged tRNA in the P site or a peptide in the P site and a charged tRNA in the A site and that's going to be the substrate to make a new peptide bond. Okay? Yeah, what's up? Yeah. That's right. So something I haven't covered yet but I'll get to this first tRNA is obviously the methionyl tRNA, right? The first tRNA in all proteins is methionine, and this green sequence would be AUG, right? So here we've got the methionyl tRNA. Uh, you bring in amino acid number two. You make your peptide bond. Now you've made this peptide bond, great. 
but you've got to now get ready for the next amino acyl tRNA to come in. And so what happens is in a process called translocation, this tRNA that was in the P site gets out, this tRNA that was in the A site moves to the P site, and now you've got a new empty A site, okay? Which can then recruit the next, and we're gonna go into this in more detail in a few slides, I'll go over it again. And so this happens iteratively over and over until you get to what we call a stop codon in the A site, and then the ribosome stops, it lets go of the protein, it folds into its native shape, and the subunits come apart, and you can do this all again. Um, if that is a little bit fuzzy, we're gonna go over it in some more detail coming up. Is that a question or a yawn? Okay. Well, it's physically covalently bound. It's linked, yeah. It's a good question. Okay, so how does the amino acid know which tRNA to get on? So uh, you have these enzymes called amino acyl tRNA synthetases, okay? The enzyme that does this is called an amino acyl tRNA synthetase. And it's the job of that enzyme to read both the amino acid and the tRNA and put the right amino acid on the right tRNA. It's not a perfect process. Sometimes it puts the wrong amino acid on a particular tRNA. And you can imagine what's going to happen then. You're going to call on the messenger RNA, you may call for phenylalanine. If the phenylalanyl tRNA has been mischarged with serine, you're going to put a serine into that protein where you should have put in a phenylalanine. So it's important those amino acyl tRNA synthetases are accurate, that they put the right amino acid on the right tRNA. And they're basically, the amino acyl tRNA synthetases, they're both binding the right amino acid. They're also kind of looking at the sequence in the tRNA to sense, okay, yeah, this is the right tRNA, not a different tRNA. So this kind of gets back a little bit what I was talking about already. So I'm gonna kind of go through this a little bit quickly. Um, What's the minimum number of nucleotides you need to get enough complexity to do all 20 amino acids? The answer is uh, three, right? Three, code, three nucleotides gives you 64 possibilities, okay? Um, those three, that three nucleotide unit that calls for one amino acid, we call that a codon. Uh, features of codons, they're triplet, meaning it's three nucleotides per codon. They're not overlapping, okay? That means that there's a frame to the coding sequence, right? You got AUG, that would call for methionine, the first amino acid, right? And then you've got the next codon, which would be, some of them I know, not all of them, UUU, and then GCA. This would be methionine, this would be phenylalanine, this would be alanine. Okay? It goes in blocks of three. AUG, UUU, GCA. It never reads GUU, or it never reads UGC. That would be out of frame. Once you get out of frame, it's a problem, because now you're going to be making the wrong protein. Right? So that's what I mean by this. The reading frame is non-overlapping. Okay? One codon's read off after the other in what we call an open reading frame. There's no punctuation. You never skip nucleotides. You always you read every one from the stop co start codon to the stop codon. Uh, codons can be degenerate, meaning some amino acids are coded for by more than one codon, and it's universal. The codons in E. coli are the same as in human. There are some exceptions, 
but by and large, it's universal. So this is what I was talking about with respect to all the different codons. You do not need to know them. Okay. With, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a few exceptions. The exceptions are you should know AUGs, codes for methionine, and you should know these three stop codons, right? UAA, UAG, and UGA code for stop. The rest of them you don't need to know. I'll call your attention to a couple of things, or at least one thing. Again, you have, for many amino acids, most of them actually, uh, you have more than one codon coding for the same amino acid. Uh, some extreme examples are serine. Serine has six codons, so UC anything, UCN codes for serine. You also have these two guys over here, AGU and AGC also code for serine. Six codons for serine. Uh, only one codon for methionine, AUG, that's it. Only one codon for uh, tryptophan. Where's tryptophan? Up, 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 up. There it is. Only one codon for tryptophan. The, uh, the one thing I'll point out is the number of codons that you have for a particular amino acid is generally proportional to the likelihood you find that amino acid in a protein. So tryptophans, for, so another way of saying that is tryptophans in proteins are pretty rare. You don't find many tryptophans in proteins. Serines are very common. Seems like when you're looking at a your typical protein, every 10th amino acid serine. Okay? So there's kind of a proportionality between the number of codons dedicated to a particular amino acid and the likelihood you need that amino acid in a, in a protein. Any questions on that? Right. Are there 64 tRNAs? No. Um, first of all, the, the thing that recognizes stop is not a tRNA. It's a protein. So there's actually proteins. To recognize stop, there are actually proteins that have the same shape as a tRNA. So they go right in the A site, just like a tRNA does, but they recognize stop. And when that happens, instead of adding another amino acid to the peptide chain, they add water. And you get a hydrolysis reaction, and the protein floats off. You also have tRNAs that will decode more than one codon. And this gets to the, what we call the wobble hypothesis. I'm not sure we're covering the wobble hypothesis in this course, but probably should. But, um, for example, famously, the tRNA for phenylalanine that decodes UUU and UUC is the same tRNA. It decodes both. Basically, what it's looking for is UU pyrimidine. It can be U or C. Right? So that saves you a bit of effort. You don't need a UUU tRNA and a UUC tRNA. The number of tRNAs you have for the 61 codons, I don't know. It's, it's, it's more than 20, but less than 61 because of this kind of what we call wobbling. When a tRNA can decode UUU and UUC, we call that wobbling. And it's especially prevalent for tRNAs, and you can see this general, as a general trend, tRNAs that vary only in the last nucleotide. So for example, you can imagine that UCU and UCC are decoded by the same tRNA. That's likely. But AGU and UCU are probably not decoded by the same tRNA because they differ in the first position. So that would not wobble. It has to be the third position of the codon to wobble. Okay, so we'll cover the steps, 
so I, I already covered this a little bit on that big slide of all the different steps of translation. So uh, I'll break them down a bit more and we'll actually get a chance to go over it again. Add some details, which I'm sure you're excited about. Um, so translation, similar to transcription, occurs in kind of three steps. Initiation, elongation, and termination. Okay. We break elongation down into three steps, decoding, peptide bond formation, and translocation. Something that is an intense area of study right now, including my own lab, but many labs around the world, is trying to understand why certain messenger RNAs are translated better than others. It turns out that some messenger RNAs are translated like a boss and other ones are not translated nearly so much. And it has to do with changes. This is just something for your own interest. We're not really, although we will get into it if you take 3130. Uh, changes in the rate at which certain messenger RNAs get initiated. Certain messenger RNAs initiate really well. Other messenger RNAs don't initiate very well at all. And so you actually have regulation, changes in protein abundance based on how well the ribosome translates, translates that message. And that bottleneck is usually found at, at the initiation step. Okay, so um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, initiation. I'll talk about a few things. In general, on these slides, the things I want you to kind of understand are the things I've written out on the, on the side here. Okay? There are probably some details here that, uh, I mean, if I point them out and talk about them, then you should understand that also. But um, there may be some details on these slides that uh, I don't talk about, nor are over here. And then so you probably don't need to know those so much. Okay? So what do you need to do initiation? Well, you need the ribosomes. Okay? We talked already a little bit about how initiation starts on the small subunit, right? You need the messenger RNA. You need these initiation factors. So these are proteins that are not part of the ribosome that will help kind of nucleate initiation, start initiation. You need the first tRNA, okay, in its activated form. That is formal methionyl tRNA, okay? What do I mean by formal? So the first methionyl tRNA in a messenger RNA has a chemical modification on it called a formylation. Okay? It's basically different than methionine. Okay? I could draw it out, but I'm not going to. I could. Do you want me to? No. I'm not going to. Um, basically, it's been chemically modified at the amino group. Okay? And only the first tRNA has this. And only the first tRNA in prokaryotes actually has this. But the point is that the first tRNA in a prokaryotic protein, it's methionyl tRNA, but formally it's formal methionyl tRNA. Okay? And so basically what happens is you've got your 30th subunit. There's this A site I talked about. There's a P site. There's a third site called the exit site, which I didn't talk about, but there's a third site on the ribosome called the exit site, the E site. The function of initiation factors 1 and 3 is to bind the small subunit and keep this large subunit from binding until you've got a nice initiation complex ready to go, right? You don't want the ribosome, the large subunit binding when you don't yet have a messenger RNA, you don't yet have a formal methionyl tRNA, okay? So there, they bind. The messenger RNA binds. This is important, this Schein-Delgarno sequence. This is the sequence on the messenger RNA that the ribosome is looking for to bind to. Okay, so the ribosome, how does the ribosome know to put the AUG right into the P site? 
because this messenger RNA may have lots of AUGs in it, right? The, the methionine in the messenger RNA, may, there may be methionines other than just the first one, right? Amino acid 75 might be methionine. So how does the ribosome know where to start? Well, right upstream of the real AUG, the start AUG, you have another sequence called the Scheindel-Garno sequence. And the ribosome is looking for that sequence when it's binding the messenger RNA. And when it binds that sequence, it puts the right AUG, the AUG is right after it. When the ribosome binds that sequence, it puts the AUG right into the P site. So it's ready to go. Then IF2 comes in, and the job of IF2 is to bring in that first tRNA. So IF2 is bound to the first tRNA, that methionyl tRNA, that F-met tRNA. And it, IF2 brings that tRNA and puts it in the P site. Okay? Importantly, IF2 has a molecule of GTP on it. Okay? So this is a GTP-requiring process. Once that's all set up, now the initiation factors can get off and the 50S subunit binds, and now we're ready to go. Now we're ready to start making the first peptide bond. So we've got a ribosome now. It's on the messenger RNA. There's a tRNA in the P site. There's an MTA site, and we're ready to go, ready to, to rock. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I did draw it. So this is basically what, this is the formal group, okay? So it's basically just this formal group that's linked to the amino group of the first methionine, okay? And this is another clue why N-formal methionine has to be only the first amino acid, right? You could not use this for a methionine later in the message. If you, this can't, this can have a peptide bond meet, this, an amino acid after this can make a peptide bond to this carboxylic acid group but this amino group cannot make a peptide bond to one before it because of the formal group here, right? right. If, you're, if this methionine wanted to make a peptide bond to an amino acid before it, the NH2 is not available to do that, right? It's got this formal group blocking it, okay? So that's another way of saying this formal methionine, it can be the first amino acid, but it can only be the first amino acid. It can't be a subsequent amino acid. In eukaryotes, the first tRNA, the first initiator tRNA is not formal methionine. So formal methionine is unique to, to prokaryotes. Okay, so this is what elongation looks like. This is kind of a summary slide. This is actually for my PhD thesis because I, I keep it for historical reasons, I think. Just nostalgia. Um, so my, my doctorate was on, on translation in ribosomes. So this is basically the elongation cycle. You've got a 50S subunit a 30S subunit, you got a messenger RNA with a tRNA in the P site. The first process that we're gonna go into some more detail is this process called decoding. Decoding is putting in the right tRNA in the A site. So sensing that there's a codon here, knowing that a particular amino acyl tRNA should be called, and putting that correct tRNA in the A site without making a mistake. That's why we call it decoding. And it relies on an elongation factor. Remember we talked about initiation factors on the last slide, IF1, IF2, IF3. Elongation factors don't start with I, they start with E, right? So there's this elongation factor. The one that brings the tRNA to the ribosome is called EFTU. It's also a GTP ace, like IF2. So EFTU and, and EFTU are both GTP aces. And the job of EFTU is to bring that tRNA to the A site 
and then the ribosome checks during decoding to make sure it's the right tRNA. Once that's done, the GTP is hydrolyzed to GDP, and EFTU comes off, and now you've got this situation. Peptidyl transfer then occurs. We also got that peptide bond formation. There's no, this is the only part of elongation that doesn't require a factor. The ribosome does this. The ribosome is the enzyme for this step. So it makes a new peptide bond between the amino acid that was in the P site, the amino acid on the tRNA in the A site. And so now you've got this basically peptide bound, peptide bonded uh, dipeptide attached to the tRNA in the A site. Now, if you want to make the next peptide bond, you've got a problem because the A site is filled, right? There's this process called translocation, okay? We also call that indexing. Basically, we move the empty tRNA in the P site to the E site. The E site is just a site that the tRNA binds on its way out. That's why it's called the E site. The tRNA that was in the A site moves into the P site, and now you've got an empty A site again, okay? This process also requires a factor called EFG. And EFG, like EFTU, and IF2 is also GTPase. So it comes in with the molecule of GTP, and the process of doing that translocation event hydrolyzes the GTP into GDP. Now you've got an MTA site, and you're ready to rock for subsequent, you just go around in circles, doing this over and over and over again, until in the MTA site, you get a stop codon. Oh, this is circled because that's what I did my doctor on, this part. Okay, so this is just basically a summary of what I just talked about. We've got a 70S ribosome on a message. We've got these elongation factors, EFTU, that brings it to the messenger RNA with a GTP. Uh, and then it hydrolyzes the GTP, comes off. The G sorry, the GTP is hydrolyzed on the ribosome when the right codon is here, the EFTU-GDP comes off, and then translocation, uh, sorry, this is just decoding, sorry. So at the end of this, you've got this amino acyl tRNA loaded into the A site. There's this cycle, the EFTU-EFTS cycle. When the EFTU with GDP comes off, it requires this factor called TS to knock the, M the GDP off again, and then it's once the GDP has been knocked off, it can now bind another GTP and do this again. So the function of this, G, of this uh, EFTS is to recycle EFTU, okay? As the ribosome, as, as the ribosome, perform, bless you, as the ribosome performs decoding and EFTU comes off with a GDP bound, this EFTU is useless until you put a new GTP on it. To do that, you need EFTS to knock the GDP off, and now EFTU is free to bind a new GTP, and now it can do subsequent rounds of decoding. Um, this is peptide bond formation, right? You've got your amino acid in the A site, your amino acyl tRNA, your amino acyl tRNA in the A site, your charged tRNA in the P site, and this is just the chemistry of what's happening. Basically, what's happening is this is the NH2 group of the amino acid in the A site, and we've already talked about peptide bonds. This is a um, condensation reaction. You're going to get this linkage, this new bond between the N of the amino acid in the A site and the C, the carbonyl of the C in the P site. When that happens, you're going to hydrolyze the bond between 
that carbonyl and the tRNA and the P side, right? So when this is done, you're going to have uh, this peptide, this dipeptide, this, this tRNA that's in the A side is going to be now extended. You've made this new bond right here, whereby you've now extended that amino acid on the tRNA in the A side by one amino acid, right? By this peptide bond. And what you're going to have on the amino acid, on the tyranny that was in the P site is now just an empty 3' hydroxyl again. Okay. And again, I mentioned that this is the only thing that uh, happens spontaneously. Right? You don't need, I mean, you need the elongation factors to set this reaction up, but it's just the ribosome that does this catalysis. Okay. And then there's this function called indexing or tra uh, translocation. We've done the peptide bond. We've got a filled A site with the dipeptide in there. If we want to run the next tRNA, that's a problem because the A site's filled. EFG comes in with the GTP. It hydrolyzes the GTP into GDP. When it does that, it pushes the dipeptide-charged tRNA in the A site into the P site. The, tier, the empty tRNA that was in the P site goes to the E site. Eventually, that will float away. And now you've got an empty A site again to bring in the next tRNA. And that also, again, I, like I covered, that also requires GTP hydrolysis. One of the neat things that was noticed when they figured out the structures of these things, it's pretty neat, actually, this is the way EFTU looks when it's bringing a tRNA to the ribosome. Okay, so here's EFTU, this is a protein, this is a charged tRNA, and it brings this into the MTA site. Okay, then EFTU hydrolyzes this GTP and gets off, and the tRNA goes into the A site, and you make a peptide bond, right? So this is what's binding to the ribosome when you have an MTA site, right? When you're bringing a tRNA to the MTA site. During translocation, the A site is filled, right? It's got a tRNA in there. EFG comes along, look at it. It looks exactly like EFTU with the tRNA on it. The shape of it, I mean. So what's going to happen? When this, this is going to bind the A site, and when it does that, it actually pushes the tRNA that was in the A site into the P site because it's a bully. It comes in, it's like, get out of here, move. I'm going to come in here. It goes into the A site, and this amino acyl tRNA that was in the A site gets shoved into the P site. Because, and it's able to do that because it looks very much like that which came in and filled the A site with the tRNA. We call, this, we call this phenomenon of two things looking the same to do related jobs. We call that molecular mimicry. So the EFG has mimicked the shape of EFT with the tRNA or the other way around. They've both conspired to look similarly to do related things, right? In both cases, they're bringing things to the A side of the ribosome. In the case of EFTU, it's bringing a tRNA to an empty A site. In, EF, in the case of EFG, it's bringing itself to the A site to push what's in the A site out of the way. Awesome. So uh, I already alluded a little bit to some of this. Uh, this is termination. So eventually, you get to an A site that has a stop code. It's not a tRNA that recognizes the stop codon. There are proteins called release factors that have evolved to basically, and you may, if you, 
if you, if you wondered about this, you'd be right. The release factor also kind of looks like these guys, right? It has evolved to go into the A site and read the sequence of the stop codon, but it's protein amino acid side chains that are doing that instead of Watson-Crick base pairing in the anticodon. So the re release factor recognizes a stop codon, binds into the A site, kind of similar to how a tRNA would, but it has evolved. It doesn't have an amino acid on it, right? So it's not going to add an amino acid onto the peptide chain. Instead, what it adds is water. Instead of adding an amino group to that carbonyl in the P site, it adds water there, so which is effectively a hydrolysis reaction. And so when you add water across it, that hydrolyzes the link between the C-terminus of the peptide and the P site tRNA. That now floats off. So now you have a ribosome that has no protein on it. These ribosome release factors then come in and they dissociate the ribosome into its components. And we talked about already, IF3, both IF3 and IF1 do this, but IF3 gets on first. Uh, it has evolved to make sure that when it comes apart, they don't come back together again until you have a bona fide initiation event. So as soon as they come apart, IF3 jumps back on again and basically acts as a doorstop to make sure that the 50S doesn't get back on until it should, until you've got a messenger RNA and an IF2 with a formal methionyl tRNA, et cetera, et cetera. Good. And I know you guys think this is quite detailed, and it is in a way, but it's what, it's what we do. This is what biochemists do. We, we study this a lot. And uh, it, gets it gets a lot worse. <laughs> this is just prokaryotes, right? So we're talking about prokaryotic translation, which is the simple one, right? In eukaryotes, it gets a lot more complicated, especially with the, with the initiation factors. So something I want to cover before we finish translation Okay, so I already talked about how um, tr translation in prokaryotes is coupled, right? This is a wonderful picture. This is an electron micrograph. You've got the DNA that they've colored in blue, okay? The RNA is kind of too small to be able to see, uh, but it's kind of in green, I guess, along here. And so the RNA polymerase is running along the DNA, making the messenger RNA, and in prokaryotes, we talked about transcription and translation are coupled because it's all happening in the cytoplasm together. So as the messenger RNA comes out, the ribosome jumps onto it and starts translating it into protein. So that's basically shown here in this cartoon. We've got DNA, RNA polymerases on it. This is an RNA polymerase that got on 10 minutes ago, right? It's already further down the message. As the RNA comes out, the ribosomes get on and they start translating, okay? This is a... RNA polymerase that got on the DNA five minutes ago, and this is an RNA polymerase that got on the DNA a couple minutes, one or two minutes ago, right? It's just further upstream. And the further down it's gone, the more RNA it's transcribed and the more ribosomes it's gonna have on it, okay? And that's what we're seeing here. These blobs on the electron micrograph are actually ribosomes. And you can see that the RNA polymerase that's further down the DNA has made more RNA and as a result has more ribosomes on it than the one that just started. This one just started. It's made a very little piece of RNA, 
So it only has enough space on it for one ribosome and everything in between. Right? So it's kind of a very beautiful image, I think. This idea of a messenger RNA having more than one ribosome on it, okay? We call that a polysome, okay? So we have a ribosome that's basically a 50S and a 30S coming together to make a 70S. So these are basically 70S ribosomes. And this messenger RNA happens to have multiple 70Ss on it, okay? So we call that a, a polysome, right? So this, a messenger RNA with many ribosomes bound to it is called a polysome. And this is an important thing to think about when we're talking about how well messenger RNAs are translated. And I kind of alluded to that already. Some messenger RNAs are translated really well, and some messenger RNAs, for reasons that we're not going to get into so much, are not translated very well. They just, they're kind of meh about getting translated. Well, a ribosome that is very robustly translated will have lots of ribosomes on it. So it'll be a polysome that's very, you can imagine that, you know, we talked about how a, a 70S, a 30S, and a 50S, and a 70S ribosome will sediment in a centrifugation profile at a certain space because it's heavy. Well, if you were to put a polysome in a sedimentation profile, it's really heavy because it's got a message and it's got, this one's got five ribosomes on it, right? So this will go into a sedimentation gradient a lot, very far into the gradient. Um, and the better a, a better a particular message is translated, and the more ribosomes it has on it, the bigger the polysome will be, if you take my meaning. Yeah? That's right. So this is all, this is all one gene making one messenger RNA, and all these proteins are the same protein, just in different stages of being translated. Right? So the DNA has multiple polymerases on it, which are in various stages of having been finished. This one just started. This one is further along. The ribosomes that are on that message are also in various stages. This one just started, so it's, it hasn't even started putting in the first peptide bond yet. This one started 10 minutes ago, so it's already up to amino acid, I don't know, what is that, 23? Something like that. You know what I mean? So it's all happening together. Okay, so that's it for translation. I'll talk a little bit in the last few minutes about some changes that occur to proteins that matter to us uh, in the lab space. So we talked about how you have enzymes that do chemical reactions in cells. Um, and you may think, okay, well then, that's great to be doing job X, let's say I've got an enzyme that breaks down glucose and lets me metabolize it into fuel, and we're going to talk about that a lot in the third section of the course, that specifically. But let's say I, did, I haven't eaten anything today, and so it would be a bad idea to have that enzyme running around trying to do a job for which we have no fuel to do it. So how can we, is there a way, how do we regulate that? How do we we could either, we could decide to make or not make the enzyme. That's one way of doing it. But that's not very, that doesn't respond very quickly, right? If to, if, if to know, 
if you want to turn on a process very quickly, you don't want to have to make the enzyme to do it just to start it. That takes a little while. Um, a better way would be to have the enzyme already made, and then you just turn it on or turn it off based on um, a, more, a rapid, more rapid way of doing it. So what commonly happens in proteins is you have uh, amino acids that get phosphorylated. Okay? Phosphorylations occur on the R groups of three amino acids. Very commonly, serine and threonine, and less commonly on tyrosine. Okay? And what happens is, you can imagine, so what is, what is phosphate? It's a very negatively charged group. Right? So when you attach a phosphate onto a protein, that has the potential to really change the fold of the protein, and that's often what happens. So basically, if you have a protein that's not been phosphorylated, and you subsequently phosphorylate it, that can change the active site of the protein, it can change the fold of the protein, and as a result, this is often used as a strategy to flip enzymes on and off. Okay? And so... Um, Enzymes that put phosphates on proteins are called kinases. Okay? So a kinase would be a protein that senses a cue in the cell. Something's changed and it wants to turn an enzyme on. So as a result, it comes along and it puts a phosphate group on a particular protein and turns that, that enzyme on. This is by far the most studied type of post-translational modification. So after the protein's been translated, we modify it. Post-translational modifications, this is very common. There are others. Uh, we can put on carbohydrates. We already talked about that. Um, N-link-like oscillation, O-link-like oscillation, which we talked about that. It commonly happens in the ER and the Golgi. We can put prosthetic groups on proteins, like heme. We can proteolytically cleave proteins. That's also considered a post-translational modification that will change the activity of a protein. Um, but this has got some relevance to what uh, we're going to talk about uh, for the rest of the course in terms of turning enzymes on and off. We're going to talk a little bit about this in the section on glycolysis and some other times also. Yeah. The question is, does phosphorylation turn the enzyme on or off? It could do either. So sometimes the phosphate linked one is the on one and the unlinked one is the off one. Depends on the enzyme. Um, some other things I want to talk about a little bit with respect to kind of things that happen to proteins after they're translated. So um, what we've been talking about up until now has had to do with proteins whose fate occurs in the cytoplasm, right? But what do you do for a protein that is going to be on the cell surface or is to be exported, right? Like an antibody. An antibody is no good inside a cell. It's supposed to be in the bloodstream looking for flu or who knows what, okay? So when proteins are to be exported or put on the cell surface, what happens is they need to be um, put into the endoplasmic reticulum of the cell, which subsequently gets trafficked to the Golgi apparatus, which subsequently gets trafficked to the cell surface. And you may cover this in more detail in 2021. I know you will cover this in more detail in 2021. But one thing I want to cover in this course, because it has to do with translation, which is what we just talked about, the um, export, so to speak, or the insertion of proteins into the endoplasmic, into the endoplasmic reticulum occurs co-translationally. You don't make the protein 
synthesize the whole protein, and then say, okay, this protein should be on the cell surface, so we're now going to put it in the ER. What happens is uh, you've got your messenger RNA. The, uh, a, here's the AUG written backwards, I guess, because it's going from right to left, so AUG. The ribosome gets on the messenger RNA, and it starts translating. Very close to the uh, end terminus of the protein, there's a, a what we call a signal sequence. It's a short amino acid sequence very close to the uh, end terminus of the protein, very close to the methionyl, the initiator methionine. When that comes out of the ribosome, okay, that signal sequence, there's this particle called signal recognition particle, SRP, that, bind, that recognizes that protein sequence and binds to it. And when that happens, translation stops. There's a signal that's sent to the ribosome to stop, stop translating for a second. Okay? What happens then is the SRP brings the ribosome to the Golgi, to the, to the, sorry, to the endoplasmic reticulum, to the ER membrane, and there's this ribosome receptor on the ER membrane that uh, the ribosome is directed to through this SRP. So you get this SRP that bound to the signal sequence, there's this SRP receptor and this ribosome receptor. The ribosome is basically docked onto the ER membrane. That's the signal for uh, SRP to get off. Once it's, the ribosome has finished docking, SRP gets off. It can now go back and recognize a new signal sequence. Once SRP gets off, the ribosome finishes translating. But as it's translating, it's actually directly putting the new protein right into the ER. So the protein kind of comes off. It's actually threaded through the endoplasmic reticulum membrane co-translationally until, again, you get to a stop codon, the ribosome releases the uh, protein, and now you've got this protein which is now found in the ER, which is now going to be directed to the uh, cell membrane or it's going to be exported. You have this signal peptidase protein that also is present. It will jump off. Uh, this is on the ER side. Often that signal protein, that signal peptide that came out, its only job was to direct the ribosome to the ER membrane. Once that's done, you don't need it anymore. So this enzyme called signal peptidase cleaves off that signal sequence. You don't need it anymore. It floats off and it's degraded. And the end result of this is a protein that's destined to be exported. Okay. But the important thing for our course is kind of this concept that it's made while the ribosome is, it's, it's destined for export. It's different than uh, messenger RNAs, right? Messenger RNAs, they're transcribed and processed prior to export to the cytoplasm. But for proteins that are destined to be exported out of the cell or put on the cell surface, it's happening co-translationally. Any questions on that? Okay, we'll pick up ubiquitination next class.